Hello and welcome to Storytelling for Business, the podcast that helps you build better customer relationships by telling stories your clients want to hear. I'm Katie Flamen. I'm a voiceover artist specialising in corporate storytelling. I've worked with clients like Sainsbury's, Abel & Cole and Schwartz, helping them to share brand stories and business developments. But why is business storytelling important? What makes a great story? And how can storytelling create leads for businesses and build lasting client relationships? I'm on a mission to find out the answers, and I'll be sharing my discoveries along the way. In today's episode, we're talking food retail with entrepreneur and coach Mark Turnbull from Turnbull's of Anik. So let's get started. Mark Turnbull's story is what you might call a classic. His family butchers, Turnbull's of Anik, was founded in 1880 when Queen Victoria was on the throne. Electric lights were a wacky new invention and the average wage was £42 a year. It's hard to believe then that six generations later, Mark's business is still thriving, despite competition from supermarkets, society pressures to eat less meat and, of course, the pandemic. So let's find out the next chapter in this story of resilience and reinvention. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Katie. How are you? I'm really good, thanks. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for having us. <laughs> well, well, I want to start by just finding out what is your business. Can you tell me a little bit more about it? <clears throat> so we, 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 I think, as you said in the introduction, we were actually established back in 1880 by, by a guy called Roger Turnbull, who I think was my great-great-grander. Business was then passed down to my great-grander and his brother, Moody and John Turnbull, uh, was then passed down to my grander, Bobby Turnbull. Then my dad, John, and his two brothers, Roger and Peter Turnbull, took over the the business in mid-1970s. I think mm. I would be about five or six, mid to late 1970s. They actually acquired the shop next door in Annick Town Centre, we're in a little town in Northumberland. And they knocked the two shops into one and we became a much, a, a, a much bigger shop. And uh, we expanded back in late 1970s. We opened a sandwich bar, which, which looking back is really interesting because it was probably quite forward thinking at the time. Yeah, I, I don't feel I always give my dad and his two brothers enough credit for 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 where they put the business back in the day, if that makes sense. Mm. And we we also opened a green grocery, so we became a, a bit of a mini food hall, if you like. I guess back in the late 70s, I joined the business in 1987. So how old were you then? I was 16, so it's funny because I've reflected on this a, a, quite quite a bit lately, just out of interest more than anything. But but I did walk away with, from school with at the time was six, I think it was five or six O levels, including a grade A English literature. Back in the day, you could get a grade A English literature, even though your language wasn't very good. I always struggled with my spelling at school. And uh, anyway, I walked away with six o, six o levels, so I probably could have gone on to do university and stuff like that. But it was never an option in my head. From about the age of fourteen, I'd worked Saturdays and school holidays. I used to get paid a pound an hour, um, <laughs> <laughs> and I could work forty. Oh, yeah, but then I could get my money. I could go through to Newcastle City Centre, and I could. I was into clothes as a sixteen-year-old. I was into to music. I loved the Pet Shop Boys. The Pet Shop Boys were just like massive in my life um, back in in 1987 so I'd spend my money on records uh, records cassette CDs as they started coming in uh, and clothes 
I guess I was blinded by that a little bit back yeah. back back then, and that was just I'd made my mind up at sixteen. I was going to work in the family in the family business. So, so was so it that, ever that, ever an option at all? Like from your parents, was there pressure on your parents to to just take over? Or was it just kind of like naturally organic? This is what's happening. Now, I would say it was naturally organic. I, I, there was certainly never any pressure. It was a decision I made. Mm. I've never regretted that decision. So it's really, it's really interesting because I'm talking to all kinds of different businesses and kind of startups and people who just run the business by themselves. And to have that kind of that story, that history of the family business behind you, do you think it made it it difficult going forward to try and reinvent things? I mean, you talked about your kind of forward-thinking dad and, and his brothers opening up a sandwich shop. And it, how have you found that in terms of kind of the pressure maybe from the family or that, that weight of history? Yeah, I was just about to say, I've never felt any pressure whatsoever. It's just not in my nature, really. I'm just, I, I do what I do. It was a natural progression, I guess. As I look back, it's like, it's almost like I was I was charging ahead without thinking where the business had come from at times. So so yeah, always yeah. looking to the future. Yeah, absolutely. And back in I think nineteen eighty eight, I'd been in there about a year, and we started. I'd always been into computers. Strangely enough, I guess it probably explains a lot when it comes to being hands on as a butcher. I'm I'm certainly not the country's best butcher. In fact, I'm. I'm I've no desire to be known as a as a great butcher. I can do everything I need to do. I'm, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I've learned it all. But I always had an interest in computers, and I think back in 1988 we introduced computers, which at the time we were probably quite forward thinking. We got payroll. We one of Sage. Everybody has heard of Sage Accountancy, Sage Payroll. We were one of Sage's first clients back in 1988 mm. or something. So, so, it, and I drove all of that forward. So I very quickly, at a young age, at about 17, got involved. On, on the actual business side of things. So do you think of yourself as a as a, a business owner, an entrepreneur, or or a butcher, or something else? Oh, I'm de- de- uh, business owner and entrepreneur first. Uh, butchery just happens to be, uh, food retail just happens to be the vehicle that I've, that I've got into, and it is what I know best, you know. I look back as well, I guess my mum, my mum when I was growing up, mum was, she opened, she had a bookshop, so I remember growing up being very little, and she owned a bookshop and we used to spend school holidays, we'd be sat in the bookshop. Sometimes I have like vague memories of that. And then when we were a little bit older, she opened a, a fitness center. She did our training down in London. She became a fitness instructor. And this was probably early eighties, which once again, she wow. was very forward thinking. So I guess I had a bit of an entrepreneurial background. I'd grown up seeing my mom and dad drive businesses forward. So, so, so it's probably had it's probably had an impact on on, on the direction I took. Mm. So, take me on a virtual tour of your food hall. If you if you you come in through the door, what sights and smells do you assault your senses when you when you step inside? So, so the the vision behind the food hall, we very much wanted it to be. I didn't want to call it the Turnbull's Northumbrian Food Hall. It it didn't really at the time feel. Maybe he's wanted something a little bit more sexier or trendier, I don't know, than Turnbull's Northumbrian Food Hall. But we had to run with it in the end because it summed up what we wanted to do. We wanted to we wanted to showcase local Northumbrian produce. Northumberland has got much better at doing it. Places like Scotland, Wales, Yorkshire, you know, regional food sort of through the 2000s became, 2010 onwards started 
real growth because they'd pumped some money in. The Thumbling County Council actually did did a great job or have done a great job over the last sort of probably six six to ten years, I, I guess, certainly the last decade of driving forward the Northumberland food brand. So we wanted the we wanted the food hall to be a showcase of Northumbrian food. Obviously it started What is what it? What we, is Northumbrian food? Sorry to well, interrupt what is you. Well well we start so you walk through the door if we've got fruit fresh fruit and vegetables for example. We will buy Northumbrian. It's quite difficult at the minute. I think I have leeks and swedes in there. I have strawberries from Spain. So it's like you know, but wherever possible we want to showcase lo- local foods so fruit and veg. Obviously all our meat our beef, our lamb, we buy still out of the local auction mart. Pigs, we buy from local abattoirs. We deal direct with some farmers, both in Northumberland, and uh, we buy some out the borders. Now, Northumbrian actually um, stretches from the Hull to Edinburgh. I don't know whether you knew that. Mm. But the, so, so, so Northumbrian gives us a slightly, um, legally gives us a slightly bigger area to work with. We buy Which is a lot helpful, of cattle, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> you know, um, direct out of farms in, in, in the borders. We get some fantastic beef. Off a, uh, we've, we've, we've built up a great relationship with a farmer up in the borders. So, 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 you know, all the meat is local. Then we take that meat and then we process it into things such as bacon, sausages. We do pies, cooked meats. So a whole range of things. And then on top of that, we buy, you know, we, we sell a lot of local cheeses, dairy produce. So, so, so I guess the idea is that we, there's still, you know, we're not a supermarket first and foremost. We are very much a speciality retailer. But at the same time, we want you to be able to cook a fantastic meal using wherever possible local ingredients. I guess that's the, that's the, the aim. But once again, the idea in the home and gift section is we want to, wherever possible, showcase local Mm. Um, local people's, you know, local craft wherever possible. Mm, so. Mm. so the business grew and grew and grew. And I now tell the story that it was the journey of a, a you know, a family butcher at a million pound food hall. So that, mm. that was the journey from the, 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 the mid 90s. The food hall location, if we fast forward to probably about 2014, 2015, the business had grown to such a size where it was, where did we go from, from there? What was the next step? Annick as a town, as, as probably many market towns around the UK, was developing out of town. I think it was about 2008, there was a big Sainsbury's in August had opened, there'd been a big sports centre had opened. At the so out kind of, of retail town parks. Yes, yeah, so it was very much going down retail parks and the town centre was definitely in decline. I would always give a positive message out that, you know, the town centre was the, the life and soul of Annick and... I guess deep down my business brain was constantly asking the question, where is this going? Where is this going? I don't know if it's too dramatic to say adapt or die, but you decided that the next chapter in your business story needed to be an out-of-town food hall. And is the food hall thriving? So it, 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 it is now, <laughs> but it's been a journey. So we opened, we take it back, where it, it was a roller coaster ride to get there. And I guess... What, what I've learned is that you don't double in size overnight and it's easy. That isn't going to happen, you know. Mm. Brought a designer in to design the food hall who had come highly recommended. Um, his costs had spiralled out of control to the point where we couldn't afford it. And I think it cost us £10,000 just to get out of, just we had to pay them £10,000 just for some plans that they'd drawn up. So I literally ended up as being project manager 
this was before we'd even stepped on site to start kitting the place out, you know. So so we, we delayed and eventually we got in in October 2019 to start kitting the place out. My initial goal when I look back was crazy, but it was to do the, was to take an empty shell and to kit the place out in six weeks. And people kept telling us I couldn't do it. And as your costs start spiraling, you deal with them. Mm-hmm. Well, I do chuckle when I look back on, 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 on how we managed. A large focus of the, the finance uh, w- w- was on NatWest. We'd applied for a £150,000 NatWest loan. Um, came through weeks after we'd opened, weeks after we'd opened, just before Christmas, I think we managed to get the money through. So in the meantime, I got the bank of dad, literally went to my dad and said, dad got this problem, that West loan hasn't come through, can you help us out? And my dad's lived and breathed yeah. the business all his life and he didn't mind at all. He just handed his heart. Cashed, <laughs> cashed his pensions in and handed over £150,000. Sorry, I do get a bit emotional when I tell this story. Yeah. So that was great. We had the £150,000. The problem the problem was when the £150,000 came through from NatWest, I'd spent that already. We'd overspent and I'd used. So when the mm-hmm. NatWest money came in, that was so I, I'd actually spent my dad's £150,000. Okay. So the, the overspend came from the... Pressure. So that, that's pressure. At that point, that was pressure. We'd focused on getting open for Christmas and... and, and, and and like literally from the 6th of September till the 24th of, sorry, the 6th of December till the 24th of December, the focus was just on Christmas. Then we had to get New Year out of the way. And then January, it's kind of like the calm after the storm. It's our quietest month. So we hit January. Now M&S hasn't opened. M&S planned their opening for the end of January, beginning of February. So for eight weeks, we literally sat there was, there is a Starbucks drive-through on the estate. They'd opened probably about three weeks before Rose. But nothing there else. A, nothing else. Nothing else there at all. No M&S, just Turnbulls and Starbucks. So we actually, when I look back, I'm quite proud of how we managed to trade. But what was worrying for myself that I didn't share with anybody at the time was that the the two businesses, the town centre shop and this brand new food hall, were trading at similar levels. Mm-hmm. So it was like, all of a sudden, you've got these little doubts in the back of your mind saying, have we made a mistake here? We doubled yeah. in size and all of a sudden, the town centre shop and the this brand new food hall are trading at similar levels. So this was in January. So January 2020. January 2020. I went away skiing, or uh, myself and my son. I got back and two key members of staff handed the notice in. It was a Friday morning, I got the phone call. Two key members, there was a, a full-time baker and a full-time butcher. And the butcher had been with us for 20, 20 years. We'd lost a few key members of staff, which we knew we would because it was a change in business. And, and But this was a blow in February for, for me personally. So I had all these challenges, two key members. And I remember going to bed every night in February. Uh, and literally, I. I was my mum brought us up as a religious uh, person, but I'm not. I don't go to church and I don't really pray. But I can tell you, in February of 2020, every night I went to bed and said a prayer every night. And my prayer, well, I wasn't bothered about the food hall or the business or anything. All I wanted was to get my dad's money back. At that point, nothing else mattered. Just wanted to get my dad's money back. And every night I would go to bed, and it's funny, and I, I, you know, I've got to be careful how I put this, but COVID wasn't sent by God to save Turnbulls, but COVID did save Turnbulls. 
Mm-hmm. And it got my daddy's money back. And it's not something I'm proud of because I know a lot of businesses struggle through COVID. So I have to be careful how I tell, how I share this story. But for me personally, you know, it, it saved our business. There, there, there was three crucial things happened to us that saved the business in 2020. The first one was the, we'd set this up as two separate businesses. Both businesses got a grant of £25,000. So we'd, we'd £50,000 had come in. Uh, and then I remember driving through, listening to Five Live, and they announced the government back, bounce back loans. Now we've got to remember is I'd spent about three or four months trying to borrow one hundred and fifty thousand pounds off NatWest, and literally I, I got back from the fruit and vegetable market. And I picked the phone up and phoned our finance director, and I said to Trisha, I said, "Bounce back loans." She literally applied one fifty thousand pound loan for each company. And by the end of the day, we had £100,000 in the bank account. So that there's my dad's £150,000 has come into the business. Yeah, the, the, the VAT had become a big problem for us because of the way we, there were massive VAT costs in setting the food hall up. And we managed to defer the VAT payment because of COVID. And that was that was a, the, the third thing that, that, that allowed us to save the business. We were of course, what happened is... All of a sudden, everybody who was being told not to go to work was stuck at home. The weather was fantastic. They announced furlough, and all of a sudden, everybody's at home with nothing to do. What did they start doing? They started cooking at home. The restaurants were shut. And I remember a good friend of mine, he said, you know, for all these years, we thought of supermarkets as being our mainstream competition. In actual fact, they weren't our competition. Restaurants were our competition. Mm, mm. And it's you know, so interesting. Um, yeah, like you would be going in on a Monday, and you were selling more steak on a Monday than what you'd ever sold on a Saturday before because because every day was the same. So like quite literally, our business took off. Into June, we thought we were busy. Then, I don't know whether you remember, things kind of slightly opened up for the mm-hmm, summer. In the summer. But of mm-hmm. course, there was no international travel. So what happened is everybody decided to come on holiday to Northumberland. It's a very beautiful so, part of the world, isn't it? it absolutely. I mean, it's a ma- you know, tourist the tourism industry for us in Northumberland, it's huge. The coastline is just beautiful. Coast and castles, we always get great weather, but it's never as bad as what people make it out of it. But <laughs> the summer of 2020, the weather was fantastic. So we got overrun. People couldn't go abroad. Bed and breakfast hotel, everybody was selling out. The, uh, 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 and we thought we were busy in 2020. The summer of 2020, we thought we'd gone to an unbelievable level. 2021, we hadn't gone to an unbelievable level. 2021, we went to an even higher level. 2022, it ramped up again. So every year we just got busier and busier and busier. So so, so, so COVID was definitely the tipping point. What would have happened without COVID? I'm sure we'd have been fine. I'm sure the summer would have come and I'm sure we'd have traded successfully. But in my head, back in February of 2020, I didn't think we were going to make the summer. So, so, so it quite literally at the time it did, it did save, save the business and uh, it, it kind of answered my prayers in a, a, a sort of roundabout way. Well, I don't know about praying, but it seems to me you owe your success to maybe some lucky breaks, but some strong business skills as well. And I think we make our own luck. And one of your major strengths is marketing, isn't it? You know, the key advice to any business is that, that whether you're in food retail or, you know, whatever you do is, is, is the key is to market your business because you can be the best at what you do. But if nobody knows about it, you're never going to grow your business. So that, that, that would definitely be the advice. How important is your, your story to that marketing? Ah, stories. It's much more interesting to listen to somebody talk who's got stories to tell. 
And when it comes to marketing your business, it's the same. So I always want to tell a story. We do every year, we do a pork pie festival. Pork pies, they're not massive for us, but when we do pork pie festival, we sell, we like literally sell lots of pork pies, but we, we, we do a range of about eight different pork pies. And we decided to do Britain's most expensive pork pie. I've been, I've had this idea in my head for a long, long time. And I have a marketing guy now who does everything for us and he ran with it in August 2022. So what goes into Britain's most expensive pork pie? Well, yeah, this is this is the thing. Caviar? Not the, there was caviar in it, <laughs> no. funny enough. So I hadn't had I hadn't done any of the work behind it. My pork pie would have been completely different to the one we did, which worried us because I don't think it would have been the best pork pie, but there was caviar literally on the top of the pork pie. That's Anyway, we set we, we 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 made the pie. We made one for each shop and sold it at a price of a hundred pounds, ninety nine ninety nine, I think, or something, hundred pounds effectively. And Matthew put it out on social media, and within five minutes he came to see us, and he said, "Mark, we've got a problem here." He said, "Somebody's just replied to the comment. How dare you do Britain's most expensive pork pie when we're in the middle of a cost of living crisis? Because this was all just kicking off back in August last year." And like literally, it was an oversight. So we told this great. He told this great story because he was the marketing guy, but he hadn't covered off this. You got to kind of, you know, when you tell a story, you have to think these things through. And we hadn't thought it through properly, but like instantly. And this is where you kind of sometimes just got to think on your feet. I said, look, we haven't thought this through, but here's what I'm going to say to you: If we sell that pork pie, we don't want the hundred quid for it. Let's just give it to the local food bank. So like literally he replied to the comment on social media and explained this. And it's funny when we were only doing it as a bit of fun to get to create a story that we could put out to the media yeah. and get some, some attention on the back mm -hmm. of it. So it, publicity effectively we were buying publicity and the money from the pie was around. We, we, we weren't bothered about selling the pie. In fact, I didn't want to sell the pie because I knew how bad it would taste. <laughs> And we'd only made two and couldn't taste it. We should have made one and tried it first. So anyway, he'd replied to this comment to say that anybody who buys it, the money will be doing it. And she, she came back and it was like, we were all of a sudden, we were like golden balls, if that makes sense. Um, David Beckham thing, we just transformed that comment. And like the next thing before we knew it, within a day, it had appeared in every single national newspaper that I can think of um, around the country, either online or actual physical printed in the paper. And uh, I think we ended up doing about two or three radio interviews. And uh, we did a radio interview on Radio Newcastle. And on the back of that, we sold both pies, which was a challenge because the pies at that point had been sat in the counter for five days. And I didn't think they would have tasted very good on day one. But fortunately, <laughs> both people didn't want the pie. <laughs> <laughs> just wanted to give the money to the food bank. Lovely. So, but anyway, it was a great story. In the end, it was a great. In the end, it was a great story. We just hadn't thought it through very well at the start. But, but it's a great example of how when you start telling stories, marvelous things can happen for your business. You've come from a high street listed building to this amazing out of town food hall, and both the businesses are now are now thriving. Where do you see your business story going next and wh where's the story going to go in the next five years 
That's a great question. So I, I, I do have a vision statement. One of the things that I've taken from my mastermind group across in America, uh, retail mastermind group, is we all, we all have vision statements. So I know exactly where I'm going to be in five years' time. The food hall will just continue as it is. I, I, I have no desire to open a chain of food halls. I'm quite happy with what we've got. Still a little bit of uncertainty, but I, you know the, the, the goal is to make our food hall one of the best independent food retail outlets in the uk that remains the target i think we're getting close you've, you've won awards we've, haven't you we've won lots of awards over the years the business is phenomenal at times it's been hard work to, the last three years it's been there's been a lot of hard work to get there for me personally I, we, we've managed to take the town center shop to a level where it what, is, what i describe as run on rails so everything just happened the food hall I've had to drag there. So it's been hard work for everybody in the business to get it. And it still is. It, it, this is a five-year project and we've still got to... We're not there. We're not out the woods yet. But but we know where we're going and it, the, the, the future certainly looks good, good now. But, we, but it's a five-year project and every, you know, the, all, all the loans, all the finance we took was, was a five-year project. Um, we've developed this million-pound food hall and we're getting close to the finish line. So, so, so we just want to keep developing that and we just want to get better and better at what we do. On top of that, I've started a business coaching business. I'm now coaching around, around about six or seven independent food retail businesses. Uh, and I've launched what I call the Retail Success Club. So um, I'm trying, I guess, the coaching side of the business is I've got this 25, 30 years of knowledge and I just want to share it and give it back to other people to allow them to drive their businesses forward. So that that's a big part of the next five years as well for myself personally. That's fantastic, Mark. Thank you so, so much. It's been really interesting talking to you and, and hearing kind of your storytelling perspective from both sides of it, your your own personal family history story, your own business journey, and also how you use stories in in your own marketing so it's it's been really super talking to you and thank you so so much thank you so what did we learn from this episode today's key takeaways are one even if your business is steeped in history it's important to move with the times and be prepared to start a new chapter in your company's story and of course to talk about it two don't panic if a story gets out of control When Mark was criticised for selling Britain's most expensive pork pie during a cost-of-living crisis, his team quickly responded to their audience and said they'd be donating the proceeds to the local food bank. The publicity was great, and all it cost was, well, quite a lot of caviar. If you've enjoyed the podcast series so far and hopefully learned something too, please like, subscribe and share. Coming up in our next episode, and we say on the website, look, none of us wear Rolexes, which which we don't. We don't drive Ferraris, and there's nobody in the office called Tarquin. That's independent financial advisor Di Rose from Sterling Welsh. He knows a thing or two about how to avoid being pigeonholed and how to stand out from the crowd. There's lots more from Di in episode eight of Storytelling for Business: Authenticity, Owning Your Story. That's all for today. A massive thanks to my guest Mark Turnbull. If you'd like to join Mark's Success Club for retail business coaching, he'd love to hear from you. His contact details and, of course, the website for Turnbulls of Anik are all in the show notes. And if you're looking for a voiceover artist to tell your story, please get in touch. You'll find my contact info in the show notes too. I'm Katie Flamen, and this is Storytelling for Business. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>